are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. How many of you have ever competed in track and field or watched one of your kids' meets? Raise your hand. Okay, we have a less athletic group than first service. (laughs) Well, at least some of you recognize that when you're watching track and field, you see chaos everywhere. It just seems like everything that's happening is random and it's without purpose. You see someone preparing for the high jump, and then you see a group of athletes who are in the infield stretching, and then you see other runners that will get prepared at their marks, and then there's other people just wandering around the entire field. It just looks like chaos. It seems that there's nothing being done with purpose. But yet we know this, when the umpires And when those running the time clocks come into position, when it's time for something to start, one of the various events, everything works with purpose, with order, and in a timely manner. Now, the reality is, that is not how our lives and our world seems to work. I mean, it does seem like a track meet because it seems initially there's disorder, there's chaos, there's uncertainty, there's no purpose. But when we look at our circumstances, we begin to think, isn't that my life? I mean, where is God in the midst of this? It may be that you're a student this morning and you're saying to yourself, when am I going to be able to go back to school in person? Maybe you're a parent and you're wondering about your kids as well. You want them to go back to school in person. Perhaps you're a young adult or a single and you've been looking for Mr. or Miss Wright and there is no one on the horizon. Or you lost your job and you're trying to find another job, but no matter how hard you look, there are no jobs. God doesn't seem to be meeting your needs. So you're asking, God, what are you doing? Where is your purpose? Where is your timing and all the events in my life? Well, the good news is, we know from our series through Daniel that God is large and in charge. That's really the purpose of Daniel. We also know that God has an uncanny way of orchestrating events and bringing about purpose from purposelessness, at least from a human perspective. So what we know is, even though it seems like we're waiting for different things in our lives, God is behind all of our wants and all of our needs, and He is orchestrating His plan, and it has order, purpose, and timing. In fact, what we could say is, God is always right on time. He's always right on time. Even though it doesn't feel like it, even though it doesn't seem like it, it is the truth that we've seen throughout Daniel, and we will see that especially so in Daniel chapter 9. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. We're in the midst of a series called Courageous Living in Chaotic Times. Do you feel like we're living in chaotic times right now? Yeah, even the kids responded to that. 
we're living in the midst of chaos, and Daniel is saying, I need you to be courageous. God is saying, I need you to be courageous and to trust in my timing. So let's look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where Daniel sets up the date and the circumstances of what he's going to write. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, this is about 538 BC, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So here Daniel has experienced Babylon being destroyed and decimated. He has lived through approximately 67 years of his people being in exile. The timing of this particular chapter is about 11 or 12, chap, uh, 11 or 12 years after the events of chapter 8. So Daniel is in his 80s. And what is Daniel doing? He's studying God's Word in likely his mid-80s, preparing to go into his 90s. He's studying God's Word, particularly the book of Jeremiah. And we know what he's studying because the text says in verse 2, he's looking at the 70 years of captivity that God predicted would fall upon Israel for their disobedience. Well, that's Jeremiah chapters 25 and 29. And what God says is, because of the disobedience of Judah, he's going to take his people into exile, and they will spend 70 years in Babylon. Daniel decides that he's going to study the captivity and the promises therein. And what he discovers is, in, Daniel, in Jeremiah chapter 29, that in order for Judah to get out of their captivity, they've got to seek the Lord with their whole hearts. And Daniel realizes, my people are not doing that right now. So he understands that in order for his people to return to Jerusalem, something needs to be done. Verse 3 tells us what Daniel does. So I gave my attention, I set my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel decides, I'm going to pray. And I'm not going to pray just any type of prayers. I'm going to pray prayers from Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29. I'm going to pray the promises of God's word. And I'm going to ask God, would you allow your people to seek you with their whole hearts? Would you allow them to become obedient to your law so that they might be blessed Right now, they're experiencing the curses of the law for their disobedience. May they seek you, Lord, so that they might be blessed. And Daniel does it with the utmost of urgency and fervency. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he fasts in the midst of that. Now, if we were to boil down these three actions, we could simply summarize them as one word, repentance. Daniel gets serious about his prayer life. He says, Lord, I am mourning. I am grieving over the sin of your people. I'm mourning and grieving over my own sin as well. 
If you and I want to see the Lord work powerfully, what we need to do is we need to pray Scripture. I'm often asked, what's more important, reading the Bible or praying? Well, you know the answer. Yes. Both are equally important. We ought to be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Acts 6 verse 4. But the best way to accomplish that is by opening up God's Word, whether we're eight years old or we're in our 80s, and then studying God's Word, meditating on God's Word, and then praying with our eyes open and our finger in the text. You've heard me say again and again, God ultimately doesn't really care what Keith thinks. He cares what his word says. God wants me to pray his word and his promises back to him. That's what brings him glory. That's what we know is for our good. So we can pray scripture in all of our reading. The best way to probably start, if you're unfamiliar with this exercise, is start with the book of Psalms. Read a psalm a day and then just look at what the psalmist says and then pray that back to the Lord with passion, with emotion. Personalize the psalmist's words and make them your own. Now, how does Daniel go about praying? Look with me at verses 4 and following. Verses 4 through 19 are his prayer. Now, this seems like a long prayer to us, but if we were to record this prayer, it's about two and a half minutes. The Lord's Prayer, or what I call the Disciples' Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, that's 30 seconds. The Lord's Prayer in John 17, it's about a minute or so. In order to pray effectively, you don't have to pray long-winded prayers. You just need to pray with fervency. You need to pray with passion. You need to believe God's Word and seek the Lord Himself. So look at how Daniel begins. In verse 4, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Going back to the beginning of verse 4, Daniel calls out to the Lord. And you can see that term Lord is in small capital letters. What the English translators are trying to help us to understand is this is the personal name of God. It's the only personal name of God in the Old Testament. It's the name Yahweh. It refers to God being a covenantal God, a covenant-keeping God, the original promise keeper, if you will. And this word has not been used in Daniel, but it's used eight times in Daniel chapter 9. And it won't be used anywhere else in Daniel. It's because of the intimacy that Daniel feels with the Lord. He calls him my God. He has an intimate relationship with the Lord. Where does he start his prayer? Oh Lord, you are a great and awesome God. So he immediately gives God praise. He starts with a vertical focus. Now where most of us start is gimme, gimme, gimme. We start with petitions and requests. We don't start with worship and praise. But this prayer, 
like all prayer, I would argue, should begin with a vertical focus, giving God the praise that's due his name. So here you have the fact that God is great and awesome. But also you'll see in verse 4, he keeps his covenant and loving kindness. So he's a covenant-keeping God. This is how he works. He's full of loving kindness. He has patience and compassion for all of his people. And then there's that assumption that if we are God's people, we will obey. It is assumed that we will be obedient. But remember, Judah has been disobedient. So this is causing Daniel great grief. If we look at the prayer of verses 4 through 19, we'll see once again confirmation about how to pray Scripture. Because what Daniel does is, and you'll see this, he goes back to all of God's revelation to the point where about 85% of the prayer deals with allusions to the Old Testament. This is chock full of Scripture. Daniel knows how to pray. We pray with our eyes open and our finger in the text. We pray God's Word. In verse 5, we see something very interesting. We. You might want to circle that pronoun we. The pronouns we and us occur 15 times in Daniel's prayer. 15 times. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. This is heavy. If there's any man who could have prayed they and them, it's perhaps Daniel. There is no sin recorded that Daniel committed in the book that bears his name. Now, we know he sinned because he is a person like you and me. But in Ezekiel chapter 14, he's on par with Noah and Job for being righteous men. Daniel doesn't choose to pray they and them. Oh, it's your people, God. Look how messed up they are. No, he says, it's about me, myself, and I. I'm going to group myself in with the people of God and say, I bear the sin. I bear the iniquity. I've fallen short of God's standard. Now, you're not going to believe what Daniel does. Using various words and terminology, he calls out Judah for being sinful 19 times. He uses 11 different verbs to talk about the sin that Israel has committed. Daniel does not shy away from calling sin what it is. S-I-N. I mean, we call adultery an affair. When we tarnish someone's reputation through gossip and slander, we call it a shortcoming, a mistake. We don't want to call sin, sin. Daniel comes right out and calls sin, sin. Do you know what we're guilty of? I'm guilty of this as well. We look at the world and we say, there's the problem. Some may think that soft totalitarianism or socialism is coming to our country, and it likely is. 
We want to point the finger at liberal politicians. We want to judge sinful people who are just sinning because sin is a part of their job description as fallen people. And we want to point the finger at the world. And we want to say it's the sin of the world that is what's given us so many problems. When Daniel is saying, no, it's sin from within. The problem is with my people and me. What's the greatest problem facing the American church? The accusation that we are self-righteous and judgmental, that we are arrogant, that we choose not to humble ourselves before people. And so our classmates, our neighbors, our coworkers, they group us into the church being full of hypocrites who are arrogant. I've got an exercise for us to attempt. Today, when you go home and you are impatient with your spouse or your children or your roommate, I want you to not just say, I'm sorry, I was impatient with you. I want you to say, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. And I want anyone within an earshot to hear you say, I sinned. The more you say that, the more comfortable it will be. Jesus didn't die for mistakes, shortcomings, and failures. He died for sin. And our culture is telling us we, we can't call sin, sin. Daniel's saying, I don't just call sin, sin. I use like almost 20 ways of calling it sin. May we own our junk. Can you imagine going to work, whether you're working online or in person, and you fail? You do something that lacks integrity. It could be something fairly small. And you tell your boss or your coworkers, I'm sorry that I sinned against you. I acknowledge I sinned before my God. Will you please forgive me? I, can you imagine what they would think? You might have a death on your hands that's not related to COVID. The world doesn't know what to do with believers in Jesus Christ who will go low, who will humble themselves, who will say, I'm sinful, and you're not the problem. You're just doing what sinners do. I want to start living like saints should live. That would revolutionize the east side of Seattle. And that is what Daniel is trying to get at with his people, Judah. Now in verse 6, Daniel doesn't stop. He goes on, he says, Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. In other words, we've refused to listen to God's word. We're guilty of that as well. We're guilty of sins like racism. We're guilty of sins like refusing to care for the poor and needy, to care for the widow and orphan. We're guilty of not listening to the prophets. Daniel doesn't stop there. Now he's going to contrast us. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. So there's a contrast between righteousness, which God possesses, and open shame, which is our lot. 
Open shame as it is to this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us. Daniel's not saying, oh, we ought to feel better about ourselves. We ought to raise our self-esteem. No negative talk here. No, he says, open shame is ours. We need to deal with the fact that we are guilty of rebelling against the God of the universe. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Who is sin against first and foremost? Not people, God. In verses 9 and 10, we read, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. In verse 9, Daniel focuses in on compassion and forgiveness. And what's not evident in our English versions is these are plural nouns. So Daniel is saying God has so much compassion. He has so much forgiveness. And what's it in the context of? Verse 9 says, rebellion, shaking your fist at God saying, God, I don't want to hear from the prophets. I don't want to hear from you. I'd, I'd rather ignore you. I'd rather choose not to act upon your word. And the Lord says through Daniel that we receive compassions. We receive forgivenesses. Doesn't sound right in English, but it's accurate in Hebrew. God is so gracious. Even when Daniel is dropping the hammer, and even when it feels like I may be dropping the hammer, just know I've had to drop it on myself first throughout this entire week. You're just hearing this on Sunday. I've had to deal with this all week and weeks prior. And yet, no matter how difficult it is to face our sin and to look into the face of a holy and righteous God, He has compassion for us. He has forgiveness that He offers us. In verses 12 through 14, Daniel continues his prayer, thus He has confirmed His words which He had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done to Israel, to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel goes back and he says, let me rehearse the biblical history. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're blessed if you're obedient, you're cursed if you're disobedient. This has to do with Israel's relationship to God in the land. It's not talking about eternal destinies or anything like that. It's just saying if you want things to go well for you, you obey. If you don't want things to go well with you, just disobey and see what happens. Daniel rehearses the fact that God is faithful to discipline his 
people like a good father does with his children. What do we want as parents if we're fortunate enough to have children? We want our children to say, Dad, Mom, I blew it. I lied. I cheated. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. The moment they do that, we are fast to forgive, to hug them, to take them into our arms and say, you're forgiven and God forgives you. That's how God wants to operate with all of us who call Crossroads our church home. But it begins with humility. It begins with a contrite heart that as Isaiah 66 says, trembles at his word. That is the person that God will look to. So what we've seen is prayer begins with praise and worship. And in this particular account, it moves to confession or repentance. And then and only then does it lead to petition or supplication, which is simply asking God for your prayer request. Now, here's what's astonishing. Are you ready for this? When you take a look at the Hebrew words and you count them all up, you've got 28 focused on worship or praise. You've got 250 focused on confession and 104 on petition. Now, because I have the use of a calculator, I have figured out this is 65% dealing with confession and 27% dealing with petition. In other words, in Daniel's case, he doesn't ask God for anything until he praises him, and then he spends 65% of his prayer saying, God, I repent, I own the sin of the people that I am helping to lead and to shepherd. I repent. We repent. We confess. And then only in verses 15 through 19 does he ask God for anything. So what does he ask God for? Notice how he builds the suspense in verse 15. And now, and now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. As it is this day, we have sinned. So he goes back to confession. We have been wicked. Make it plain, Daniel. Don't pull the punch. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts. You might want to highlight that. You might want to put a little asterisk next to that. Daniel focuses in on God's righteous acts. Let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around you. All those around us. Would the world say the same thing about the church? Or is this just true for Judah? Have we become a reproach to the world through various scandals, through laziness and disobedience, through pride and self-righteousness? I think we know the answer. But notice verse 17. Daniel builds the suspense even more. So now, what's coming, Daniel? Our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, I put this in brackets, for your sake. This prayer is not for Daniel. It's not for Judah and Daniel's people. It's for God's sake. For your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. 
Now, verse 18 is likely the theme of the entire prayer. So circle verse 18, just number 18. Daniel says, oh my God. We use this sometimes inappropriately, or we hear people say, oh my God. But that's how Daniel prays. He's got a personal, intimate relationship with God, and he says, oh my God, you're my God, and I'm going to pray with passion. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Underline that last phrase, but on account of your great compassion. This is a term used of a nursing mother in her relationship with her children. This is a term of endearment. And Daniel keeps coming back to it, that God has compassions for us. He feels love, care, and commitment to us in his innermost presence. And he offers that to us. This is all about God's reputation. It's about God's reputation first and foremost, and then the good of Judah. The same is true in our case. As much as we want to see God do a work in the American church and at Crossroads Bible Church, it's first and foremost about God. It's His reputation. It's His renown that we are seeking. Verse 19 is the last part of the prayer. And this is where Daniel gets real passionate. Now, we're passionate about our play. Are we passionate about our prayer? That's the question. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. So he goes back to verse 17 and he says, this prayer is prayed for God's glory, for God's renown. Oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. In other words, demonstrate that covenantal love and commitment to your people because it's about your good name. Will you be faithful to your people, Judah? Will you keep your promise as they seek you that they might return to their land in Jerusalem and worship you? What a way to pray! Praise, worship, confession on behalf of all of God's people and then to humble ourselves before God and then and only then begin to ask Him for things. Think about prayer this way. Prayer starts with God's Word. When we open up the Scripture, we start praying. We base our prayers upon God's Word. Prayer starts with God's Word. It ends with God's glory. God's Word, God's glory. That's how you can have a successful, fruitful prayer life. And notice, God brings all of this about in His time and in His way for His great name. God is always right on time. It may not feel like it. It may not seem like it. He's always right on time. Now, in verses 20 through 27, we see God's response to Daniel's prayer. Beginning in verse 20 all the way through 23, now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication, my requests, before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, that's Mount 
Moriah in Jerusalem. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, remember Gabe? Gabriel means mighty man of God. He's one of two angels mentioned in Daniel. Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, for those of you who are using the ESV and a few other versions, this is translated that Gabriel was swift in flight. Now, that's certainly possible, but a better translation is referring to Daniel's weariness as he's fasting praying with sackcloth and ashes and waiting for God's response. In verses 22 and 23, we read, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So God dispatches Gabriel before Daniel even hits verse 15. Did you catch that? Before Daniel starts asking God for anything, God has dispatched Gabriel to give him the answers to his desires and to show him God's timetable and to also demonstrate to us God is always right on time. It's so clear. Do you realize that God may be answering your prayers right now? They may have already been answered, but for whatever reason, God is delaying them coming directly into your life. But he's heard your cry, he's responding to your prayer, and there will be answers, whether it's yes, no, or wait a a little while longer. But the answer is coming. Now, you can see in verse 23, Daniel is highly esteemed. He's valuable. He's treasured. This term is true in one sense of every believer, but that's not how it's being used here. God is saying, Daniel, because you're a man of prayer, because you're a man of my word, because you have persevered in your faith, I want you to know that you're highly treasured to me. You're highly esteemed. And that's what we want. We want the compassions and the forgiveness of God, but we also want to pursue Him. We want to turn our face to Him. We want to seek Him with all that we are. God gives Daniel the answer to his prayer in verses 24 through 27. Now, commentators have called this section a dismal swamp. This section of four verses could take me six months of preaching each and every Sunday to unpack. I like how Jerome handled this issue. Jerome was one of the apostolic fathers of the early church. He said, there's nine interpretations that I know of, and I have no idea which is right because godly men and women hold each of the nine views, so figure it out for yourself. Now, what's sad is, since Jerome's time, There are multitudes of other theories and views and interpretations. The classroom is what Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is for. Not Sunday morning where we're unpacking Daniel. But what I will say is this. Instead of us focusing in on the branches and the twigs 
The trees themselves, I want us to focus in on the forest. And whatever view you hold, whether you hold the view I'm going to present or your own view, the bottom line is the same. God is always right on time because this deals with God's timetable. I hold that this is futuristic, which means this is yet to come, at least in the fullness of the interpretation. Notice how Daniel begins, 70 weeks. Some of your versions will have 77s. Weeks in this context should be understood as years. So 77s is 490 years. 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city. The holy people is Israel, the holy city is Jerusalem. Then Daniel goes through six purposes. Notice number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end to sin. Number three, to make atonement for iniquity. These three purposes began to find fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But they are not fully fulfilled because this is dealing with God's purposes for Israel, which will come about during a period called the tribulation period, where God begins to reach his chosen people and restore them to his love. They will begin to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Notice the last three purposes. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And lastly, number six, to anoint the most holy place. These deal with what God is going to do with the nation of Israel during the period called the tribulation. He is going to ensure that Israel recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Now let's look even more deeply into this. Verse 25, Daniel writes, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, that's Jesus, the prince, there will be seven weeks. This is in reference to 49 years. And 62 weeks, this is 434 years. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So what Daniel does is he computes a total of 483 years. He fast forwards 49 years, speaking of prophetic years, 360 days within a year, and he fast forwards to Nehemiah chapter 2, where Nehemiah chapter 2 in 444 BC says, Israel will be restored. The walls will be rebuilt. God's people will be able to worship once again. And then when you fast forward 434 more years from that time, guess where we end? 33 AD with the death of Jesus Christ. I would argue this is one of the greatest prophecies in the entirety of the Bible. Now, in verse 26, we read, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah, that's Jesus, will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Jesus will come, he will die on the cross for the sin of humankind in A.D. 33. 
He will look unimpressive. He will have no one and nothing available to him. But he will die for the sin of humanity. Then there is a gap with a remaining seven years. The seven-year period that is not discussed is discussed in verse 27. It is a period called the tribulation where the Antichrist will come and he will bring hell to earth. But during that period where he judges God's people, God will use the judgment he brings to bring God's people, the Jewish people, into a relationship with Jesus. That's verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This is the Antichrist. But in the middle of the week, this is the half point of the tribulation, the three and a half year point, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Or as some translations read, the desolator. You've heard of the terminator? This is the desolator. But it's not Jesus in this context. It's the Antichrist. The Antichrist will come. He will ask or command the world to worship him as God. And he will wreak havoc upon the earth. But at the end of this period called the tribulation, the last three and a half years, the great tribulation, Jesus comes he returns, and he will take Satan, the false prophet and the beast, and he will throw them into the lake of fire. So we need to understand, while this is difficult reading, be grateful I didn't take the six months. I took about six minutes to explain this. Can you say, whew? All you have to remember is this. In Scripture, approximately half of all prophecies and predictions have been fulfilled. If they have been fulfilled, the other half that remains will be fulfilled. We can count on it. If God is large and in charge, if He is always right on time, if He's shown us what He's capable of, and we've seen half of the prophecies in the Old and New Testaments fulfilled, can he not do that with all the other ones that we're reading about? The answer is, of course. We expect it. We assume it. So what can we do as we've gone through this minefield? We can do what we've said throughout. We can give our timetable to the Lord. We can say, Lord, I know that you are always right on time. And in the meantime, I'm going to open up the word. Whether I'm in my 80s or whether I'm in elementary school, I'm going to open up your word. I'm going to read it the best I can. I'm going to meditate on it. And then with my finger in the text, I'm going to pray promises that are applicable to me. I'm going to share scripture with God because he loves hearing his word prayed back to him. And then I'm going to do something else. I'm going to own my junk. I'm going to confess my sin. And instead of pointing the finger at the world outside of the church, I'm going to point the finger at me and God's people. Sin from within is what is most dangerous, not sin from without. God wants us to deal with our sin first and foremost because judgment begins in the household of God. 1 Peter 4, 17. Once we've confessed, we can ask. 
We can ask God to bring revival to a remnant within this nation. We can ask God to transform lives and to use us as his agents of transformation and change. And then we can get excited about prophecy, that God brings answers to help us prepare today for tomorrow. If we realize that he's sovereign, that he's the ruler, that he's the owner, that he is always on time, we'll be ready. Do you know what next Sunday is? It's daylight savings time. We are going to spring forward. I do not like springing forward in March. I feel like once I lose an hour of sleep, it might take me six, seven months to recover until I hit November and I fall back. National Daylight Savings Time is difficult, but it's always timely. You may feel like your life is purposeless. You may feel like God is not on time. He is not answering your prayers. He's nowhere to be seen. I can assure you of this. God is always right on time. He will meet your needs. He will come and show himself off, his great name, his great power, when you need it most. But you must trust in him, and we together must set our face upon seeking our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we bow the knee. We just acknowledge today, Lord Jesus, that we are sinful. We confess sin of unrighteousness. We confess sin of ungodliness. We acknowledge we are self-righteous, judgmental, proud. We have refused to do the things that you've called us to do so frequently. We have not been fathers to the fatherless. We have not cared for the widow and the orphan. We have chosen to be prejudiced. We repent. We confess our sin to you, and we ask that you would deliver us from ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see what a great and awesome God you are. There is no one like our God. We acknowledge that. We want to begin with your praise. We want to conclude with your glory. And we acknowledge that while we don't understand everything in Daniel 9, you are a God who has sent your Son, the Messiah, the Prince. And we know that the Prince with a capital P will conquer the Prince with a lowercase p. Thank you that we know you are victorious, that you are the conqueror, and that your word tells us so we don't have to stress, we don't have to be flustered, we don't have to be anxious. You are a God who is large and in charge, and we can trust in you. Father, we pray today for those who are sinners. We call it out, Lord. We ask that those of us who are sinners, that we would turn to the Savior and we would acknowledge our need of you. May we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died not for failures, he didn't die for mistakes, he died for sin and for sinners, and we acknowledge that to you today. Lord, may we believe in Christ, the Savior, from our sin. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in our church, in our individual lives, and throughout the east side of Seattle. May we touch the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and may your name and your reputation be great 
within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.